material, but it doesn't exactly hit on what I'm going through in my life right now. And that makes sense because not all of us are parents, right? Not all of us are married. Not all of us are in all those situations. Well, as we wrap up the series today, we're going to consider one more subject. And this one, I'm telling you, applies to every single person listening today. Because when Jesus came to earth and modeled what it looked, not only what God was like, but what it means to be human again, he modeled for us the path of humility in one other kind of relationship. And that is the relationship of being a child. Now hear me, I'm not just saying being a kid. I'm saying when we entered this world, we were born as somebody's child. And for the rest of our life, we figure out what it means to be a child from childhood through adulthood and onward. What does it mean to be humble as someone else's child? Because forever and for always, right? You're always gonna be your mama's baby. What does it look like as a five-year-old? What does it look like as a 25-year-old? What does it look like when you enter into this world as a newborn? And what does it look like when we approach death's door? That's what we're going to consider today. What does it mean to be humble as a child? And who better to learn from than Jesus? As we've seen all through this series, the Gospels actually include for us four specific interactions, different key interactions between Jesus and And we're just going to embrace it. Because whether it's a mighty rushing wind that comes through the temple and that's the Holy Spirit, or it's a blackout in the middle of a message, I think that's just evidence for us of who our God is. Amen? So let's keep rolling. Here come some phone calls too. We're going to look at four gospel accounts telling four different key interactions between Jesus and his mother Mary. And we're going to learn, these are four different stages and ages of development. And what we're going to do is we're going to glean what it means for us, similarly, to be humble children. Because getting this right has massive implications. Not simply on this life, but in the life that is to come. Now I'll say that again. Growing in our humility as somebody else's kid has massive implications, not just for today, but also for the life that is to come. If you don't believe me, I'll show you what I mean. Let's take a look at our first story in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to start with verse 41. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be a reliable resource for Bible. So if you don't have a Bible now, or have it out, now's a good time to pull it out. Or turn to your neighbor and say, hey, can I peek over your shoulder? Because again, I want to make sure we see this text. Because uh, after all, like... I don't want to be lying to you, tell you what's on the Bible. This is what the Bible says, but you want to see it for yourself. Prove me. Okay, here we go. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, it says the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem But they, the parents, were unaware of it. So here we've got Jesus as a 12-year-old kid. This is pre-teen Jesus. 
And the story goes on to say that his parents, Mary and Joseph, traveled for a whole day before realizing Jesus was even missing. And once it dawns on them, they start checking with everybody in their traveling group. They're like, I lost Jesus. Do you know where Jesus is? We can't find. Can you imagine losing Jesus Christ, the son of God? Talk about panic. Well, eventually they turn back to Jerusalem and it says they finally find him after three whole days. Three days he was missing. But it turns out he was hanging out in the temple courts, listening and questioning and talking with the teachers. Verse 48 picks up saying, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His, his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And then Jesus goes, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And this is big. Mary goes, hey, your dad and I have been looking for you. And Jesus goes, well, I was supposed to be in my dad's, capital D, heavenly dad's house. Didn't you know it? I love the fact that they're searching for him. My son, uh, Nathan, he's four. And uh, without a doubt, I walk upstairs, it's time for bed, and I can guess where he is. He's under the mattress. He's under the bed. He finds a way under there because he doesn't want to brush his teeth, doesn't want to get ready for bed, that kind of thing. And I've just come to realize, okay, Nathan, get out from the bed. Like, it's just part of our routine in, in bedtime. Well, Jesus is like, you shouldn't have been searching for me. You should have known where I was supposed to be all along. If you knew me well enough, you would have known where I was but they didn't get it, it says. Now, kids in the room, if you're a Christian, there may be times when you sense God calling you to do something and sometimes your parents won't get it. Maybe he's calling you to go deeper in the word and they can't figure out why you wanna sit in your room for hours on end reading the word of God when it's a sunny day outside and you could be playing. Maybe sometimes he's calling you to share the gospel with your classmates and your parents are getting annoyed because they keep getting a call from the principal saying you're disrupting class again. Whatever the case, I want to encourage you with something. Evangelist Leonard Ravenhill once said it this way. One of these days, some simple soul will pick up the book of God, read it, and believe it. And then the rest of us will be embarrassed. I take that to be an invitation for those of us who consider ourselves to be young. And by that, I mean not fully educated, no big degrees or PhDs by our names. But my goodness, do we love God. And all we want to do is to take him at his word. And if that is you today, I'm going to tell you, others may not get it. But if you do, then don't let them talk you down. Jesus was in his heavenly father's house. But he was also 12. (laughs) And Jesus knew full well what it was like for his parents not to get it. There will be times when our parents don't get it. So how do we respond humbly? That's the question. Well, verse 51 continues. Then Jesus went down to Nazareth with his parents and was, it says, obedient to them. 
First, I want you to realize that every act of Jesus on earth was done in humility. Whether it was being born as a helpless child in a manger, performing miracles, dying on a cross, in all of it, the boundless creator, God of the universe, chose to become small. So why then would this be any different? Whether he's in his heavenly father's house or he's returning to his earthly father's house, he always chooses the path of obedience and humility. But I want you to notice, even though Mary didn't get it, verse 51 continues to tell us that his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And verse 52 then closes the section saying this, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Kids and students, here is a great verse for you. If ever I saw one that describes what being a humble kid looks like when you're living at home, a humble student looks like living at home. Your responsibility as given you by God is to grow. To grow mentally in what you know, to grow physically in what Uh, and how God allows you to grow physically, to grow spiritually in your relationship with God and to grow interpersonally in your relationship with others. Now we're gonna take one at a time, starting with mentally. This means learn, take time to study, Uh, work at school, take school seriously, not merely to get good grades, but to learn how you learn best. Because after all, this is going to set the course of what it looks like for an entire life of learning going forward but also grow physically. Physically, discover how your body works. Discover and and then surrender its usage to the Lord. Submit the desires of your heart to his ways because he knows how your life works best and how your body works best. Begin implementing healthy habits, whether it's eating or resting, playing, so forth. Take care of the temple that he has given you to steward. But also grow spiritually. Spiritually, that means take seriously our relationship with God. Prioritize the relationship with him as number one. Uh, Read the word, ask questions, uh, make friends with other Christians, not just your age, but older than you, who have lived life further than you and can help you along in the way you should go. And these habits you establish now will serve you the rest of your life. And finally, grow interpersonally. Interpersonally, take seriously your relationships with others. You know, when you say something, mean it. Practice kindness and take time to listen. And when your friends are hurting, lend them an ear and maybe even a hug. And when people speak poorly of you, learn to forgive and be a blessing to them anyway. Just as it says, Jesus, God himself in human form, took time to grow, we too as humble kids take time to grow. That's our first interaction. Here's our next one. Uh, We're going to jump ahead to Jesus. This is about two decades later. So Jesus is now 30 years old. Okay, so he's grown now and he's a man. And he's at a party with uh, some friends celebrating the newly married couple in a place called Cana. And the part, but find out the party has taken an unexpected turn. John chapter two tells the story. Verse three picks up. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, They're out of wine. Jesus responds, woman, wow, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother says to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you. So 
Jesus tells the servants there to fill some large stone jars. You may be familiar with the story. They fill it to the top with water, roughly 150 gallons or so. And then miraculously, when they dip their cups into it, out comes wine instead. If you know the story, it's like, okay, cool, water to wine. No, 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 water to wine, right? Like Jesus just turned H2O to V-I-N-O. Like, but it was more than vino, right? It's not just box wine. This is the choicest, the best of stuff. Somehow, miraculous, right? But anybody else feel a little strange listening in on the conversation between Jesus and his mom? Like Mary comes in all Jack Sparrow, like, why is the rum gone? And then verse 4, Jesus goes, woman, ouch, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this exchange between Jesus and his mom reminds me a lot of my teenage years. You know, late for school, not yet up in the morning. Mom comes in, wake up, wake up, wake up. And I'm like, woman, my hour has not yet come. (laughs) Roll the covers over. (laughs) But seriously, Jesus saying this kind of, it bucks up against the impression that we have of who Jesus is, right? Because this is Jesus' mom. Like, this is the, like, ladies who have birthed children, that's a big deal, but you ever birthed God? You know what I'm saying? Like, what is going on here? Something feels a little tense. And, and he calls her woman and not dear woman, like some translations want to soften it. No, there's a sort of tension here. There's a sense of exasperation, I believe. And we get a hint at why in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. These are the signs. Now in John's gospel, there are, we're given seven distinct signs. The miracles, yes, but more than that, these seven signs are like a movie trailer. You ever watch a movie trailer and think, oh man, that's amazing. I don't need to see the movie now. No, a good movie trailer whets your appetite. Coming soon to a theater and you get your ticket because you want to go see what you heard about. Well, the signs were kind of like this. The signs, uh, we know that Jesus came to earth in human form and yet he's fully God by willingly emptying himself. We we heard this illustration on Easter, right? Like a beautiful picture of, of your favorite beverage being poured out into plastic cups or basic clay cups. Like all of a sudden you can't see the beauty of what's inside because the outside looks ordinary. That's kind of like what it was for Jesus. And yet we know that he is fully God. So when Jesus turns the water to wine, which it says revealed his glory, we know that that sets the timer, so to speak, of his path to the cross. It like sets the clock for what's to come because, oh, he's not just a man, he is God. And it's becoming clear through these signs. So we're at a crossroads of sorts in the relationship between Jesus and his mom. Mother Mary wants to push Jesus to do something that she knows her baby can do. But Jesus, I believe, is slowly expressing some kind of independence as a grown man now. And this is going to splinter even further in our next story, which you'll find in Matthew chapter 12, picking up with verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. 
And someone tells Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Now there's a separation happening. Jesus is not only a man now, but he's on a mission. A very clear mission that even from the, uh, from the story of Jesus as a preteen, we saw it. He wants to be about his father's business, his heavenly father's business. So his mother and his brothers, this is Mary, James, and Jude, I believe, they all show up while Jesus is busy at work. And they figure, hey, we're going to get the family treatment, right? Because we're family. But then Jesus surprises them. Verse 48 continues. He replies to the man who, who said that your brother and brothers are outside. He replies to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, so not to Mary, Jude, and James, but pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Forever, anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see the shift that's happened? A shift has taken place. Whoever does the will of my father is my family. No more family discount. No more family treatment. Jesus is clear now about what he's been clearly about. And it's worth noting that apparently through Jesus's life and ministry, his brothers never actually got that close to Jesus and his ministry. And yet we find out that before their lives are through, both James and John, who we know are half-brothers of Jesus elsewhere, well, they each end up writing their own book of the Bible. James's book of the Bible sounds a whole lot like Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Now Jude, well, Jude's a little bit harder to understand. <laughs> There's a reason it got placed next to Revelation. But although a separation is taking place family-wise, what I'm seeing is that there's an autonomy. It needs to be said that the invitation from Jesus is clear. If you want to be my mother and my brothers, do the will of my father. That invitation is always open. Now, this may seem hard to say, but there is a time when a child needs to become their own person. They have to make their own choices, their own decisions, their own mistakes their own failures, their own successes. And maybe that feels trite coming from a 34-year-old preacher. <clears throat> but I find myself caught in the middle a bit here. Because yes, I've got young kids, but along with being a father to three young kids, I'm also simultaneously trying to figure out what it looks like to be an adult son to my parents. What's humility look like here? Jesus is perfectly humble, this we know, and he maintains autonomy from and relationship with his family. But what's that look like in the everyday stuff of life? That's the challenge before us. In psychology, this is called differentiation. Differentiation, which psychotherapist Tina Gilbertson describes uh, as one of the most important developmental tasks we face in life. As we grow, we form our own identities as adults, distinct from our families of origin. This process generally doesn't happen all at once. Most of us will work on it throughout our lives. So differentiation is, is, a, is a necessary process, and it happens a little at a time throughout childhood, from adulthood into, uh, sorry, childhood into adulthood. But I love how healthy Jesus' response is, because it's not just about balancing personal autonomy, but he's also maintaining the invitation. If you want to be about my heavenly father's business, then good. These are my brothers and my mothers. You can come be part of us too. 
And we know that the invitation remains throughout the rest of his days because of this final story. I'll paint the scene. It's dark. And the one who eternally heard angel choirs crying out night and day, holy, 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 now finds a mob around him gathered with vengeance in their hearts and they're screaming out a single phrase, crucify. They seize him. They throw him down. They tear his clothes, exposing his back as a soldier comes with a whip in his hands, 39 lashes because 40 was known to kill a man and they wanted him alive for this. They grab fistfuls of his beard and they spit on his face and they press a crown of thorns so far into his skull that there isn't a single spot on his body not covered in blood. And then placing a rough, heavy piece of wood down on his back. I just imagine the splinters digging into all of those fresh wounds. They parade him in this painful march to an execution spot. And there with nails driven into his hands and feet, they plant that tree of death into the top of a hill called Golgotha, which is the place of the skull. And then John 19 picks up with the story in verse 25, saying that near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, Jesus said to Mary, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Here's what I want us to see. Even in his greatest hour of suffering, as Jesus knows the end is near, he cannot help but make sure his mom is taken care of. And this leads us to our final lesson on humility from Jesus as a child, that he takes care of his parents. Whether it was joining his earthly father in the family business of carpentry or entrusting his mother's care to a trusted friend as he nears his own death, we see Jesus continually make the choice to release status, empty himself, and embrace servanthood. Through to the very end, even with and especially with his own parents. I want to show you a graph. This, this maps out these stories uh, as a sort of summary of what we've seen together this morning. We have this graph here. It, here's the five story, or four stories. Preteen uh, as a man, 30-year-old, water to wine. Mission is a, you know, the mother and my brother story. And then death on the cross. I put baby and a child here. We know Jesus came as a baby. I didn't feel like there was a lot that we could learn from that story of humility because he, he's crying and he needs help. And, and you get the idea. But notice the responsibility shift over time, right? It starts, Jesus' trajectory begins down here as a baby and child and then works its way upward, but then Mary starts at the top and then trends downward. And it practically makes an X over time. So starting with Jesus as a baby, Mary's got responsibility and charge over him to ensure that he's taken care of, his needs are fulfilled, and all of that. 
And then eventually we get to Jesus as a preteen, and then things start to kind of come closer a little bit. Jesus' mission and purpose are becoming clearer, and he's exploring that in conversation with Mary. By the time he reaches adulthood, that's where waters turn to wine, they're at a crossroads. Mary's expectations and responsibility over him and Jesus' expectation and responsibility are now at an impasse. And this is a telling shift. And it's more clearly seen in that next story where Jesus is on mission and Mary and the sons show up and Jesus is like, my mother and my brothers are those who do God's will. My blood is thicker than family blood. And this is that fourth part where really the rubber meets the road and the two paths have really crossed entirely in this process of differentiation. And then finally, at Jesus' death, he's got to make a final call of how to care for his mom. He's assuming total responsibility by entrusting her to a faithful friend. Now, this is not a perfect model, but I think it can help us kind of chew on and just uh, gives us something to chew on in terms of what humility and responsibility and autonomy and relationship, what all of that looks like over time between a parent and a child from childhood into adulthood. You know, what's mine, what's yours, all of that. So here's where I think we can uh, make this useful for us as it relates to the subject of what it looks like in every stage of childhood to be humble. First, for children. Where are you as a child on this graph? If maybe you say preteen, teenage, where are you coming into parts of yourself but also maintaining obedience even as Jesus did to those that God has entrusted to be over his care. You know, if anyone had imperfect parents, it was Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is God, and yet even he knew what it meant to release status, empty self, and embrace servanthood for the glory of God. And so if you're in more of that teenage range, your responsibility, as we saw earlier, is to grow mentally, interpersonally, spiritually, physically. But if you're grown and you're out of the house, then identify your God-given purpose and give yourself toward it no matter the cost. Because at times it may lead to tension between you and your parents. But if it happened for Jesus that there was tension between he and his mom, then this should give us a little bit of comfort that tension and conflict don't necessarily need to imply sin, but simply a difference in direction. That's okay. If you're well into adulthood and the question starts coming up about how to ensure that our aging parents are taken care of, then remember that Jesus in his greatest hour of suffering also made it a point to care for his mom. And as we do this, would we find the heart of humility that was in Christ being shaped and formed within us and find these barriers coming down? On the flip side, for any parents here, try to assess where are your kids presently on this graph? Are you allowing them to grow into who they are? or trying to force them to stay as you remember them, as they were? Are you learning to accept and embrace them for who they are today, or do you find yourself unwilling to because you'd rather remember them for how you knew them before? Where are we letting go of control and allowing them to make their own mistakes? Where are we allowing nostalgia to take hold of us rather than relinquishing our children to the God whose loving hands they've always been in anyway. 
Now, granted, in Mary's case, her son was Jesus, so it's not like he's going to do anything that bad, right? It's a little easier. But in our cases as parents, it's a lot tougher because we know our kids aren't always going to choose the right path. So what does it look like to watch devastating mistake after mistake and yet to still be there for them and support and love them through it? Same goes here for any who work with students and youth. You know, where are your students and and kids at? Does it look like they're growing well through this graph or is there some, something seems stunted at all in their development? Maybe you're a mentor, you work with young, young guys and you're seeing just kind of some shortcomings. What does it look like to, to intervene? Because maybe their parents are either too controlling, just quenching what's there, or perhaps the parents are under controlling and not taking seriously the responsibility and stewardship they're supposed to have over their kids. Where can we stand in the gap of their development and help nurture their growth, not only spiritually, but mentally, emotionally, interpersonally, and so on? If you haven't done so, it might be worth taking a quick picture of this, just to refer back to from time to time, just to see where where am I, where are my kids, where are we right now in the relationship, where can we ensure that we're growing uh, and, and helping our kids grow in this process? How do we ensure that it's taking place so that we are all growing as Jesus did in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man? Now, we've, we've kind of danced around a lot this morning. We've considered a lot this morning. But there's one more piece, and in fact, I believe it's the most important for us to look at today. We're going to wrap up with this. <clears throat> it's something that our childhood that is growing up in this world as somebody else's child was meant to teach us and prepare each of us for. Look at this with me, Matthew chapter 18, verses one through four. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, it continues, like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, for all the barriers that exist between us and one another, whether it's in our workplace, between a boss and an employee, or it's between parents and children, or it's between a spouse, husband and wife, whatever it might be. For all the barriers that exist between each, you know, one one another, there is still a more significant barrier that exists. And it is the barrier between us and God. These are the ropes that we put up between us and God. It's not God. God is reconciling himself to us through Christ in every moment, right? He did that on the cross. He's offering it to us. But we put up these ropes between us and God. We're the ones that won't humble ourselves. We're the ones that won't. But we know that God has moved heaven and earth to make a way through Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, there is one hero to the story, and that is Jesus. He gets the name that is above every name. He is the one that every knee will one day bow to. And it's not enough for humble leaders to lead people 
to bow their knees to Jesus. And it's not enough for humble parents to lead their kids to bow their knees to Jesus. And it's not enough that humble husbands and wives and friends and bosses and employees would live in a way that leads others to bow their knees to Jesus. No, Jesus makes it clear. It's not enough that they bow the knee to Jesus. We must bow the knee to Jesus. And it's not just a one-time deal. Like we must declare Jesus is Lord with every breath that we have. We must turn. We must change. We must surrender and bow the knee to Jesus daily. Otherwise, all of it means nothing. All of it falls short. We could perfectly execute every single principle and strategy of humility that we've learned in this series, all series long, to remedy the broken relationships around us. But if my knee doesn't bend to Jesus today, none of it matters. All it becomes is a humble brag. Look at how humble I am in my relationship as a leader. Look at how humble I am in my relationship as a spouse. And it all falls flat if I'm not bowing the knee to Jesus. We could, no, I mean, in everything, we must personally bow to him. And, as, and what we'll find as we do, that as we approach Jesus, as he said, as a child, we will find that we enter life in the kingdom. The greatest is the lowest. It's time we get low. It's time to get low. It's time to learn how to walk on our knees. Because the one who humbles himself, the one who lowers himself, Okay, Lord, you've made a way. I surrender to you. That's the one who enters the kingdom. And what we'll find is that there's one humble brag worth making it's the humility it takes to brag on Jesus. Pray with me. God, may this not just be words. May this not just be words. May this be a heart posture of every single person listening today, of every single person here today. Lord, may this be true in my life. I don't want this to be something that we say, okay, good. We wrapped up the series, we're good, we're ready to go. No, Lord, there's something you wanna do in our hearts right now. Because for some of us, it's all a show. For some of us, it's just about, look at me. Day in, day out, Sunday in, Sunday out. Year in, year out, I'm just doing the thing. God, if that's us, break us down. Because it is so easy to pretend it is so easy to pretend, but the real test of whether or not we're living life in the kingdom is if we can be and live and remain fully humble as a child. And so God, who needs to come today? 
Who needs to find life in you? Would they not leave this moment until they've done so? Until they've cried out to you and said, God, I can't do this on my own. These barriers are still up. These ropes are still up. I need you to break through and break me down and make me new. May that happen today, God, because otherwise, what's even the point? He might as well just go fishing. But if this is real, and if this is true, then Lord, would you break us? Bend our knees that have been so rigidly standing our ground that we would fall at your feet and beg for your mercy and find that you lift us up. This we pray desperately for your glory and your namesake. Amen.